All 193 countries of the United Nations have declared it a concern of all nations, and the European Space Agency has made tackling it a key priority. Now, ESA and the UN have joined forces to highlight this topic of global concern, space debris. I'm Rosa Jesse, editor at ESA's Spacecraft Operations Centre in Germany, and in this podcast series, we'll speak to experts on space debris, space policy, space law, and more. Each podcast episode comes with a corresponding infographic, beautifully illustrating the issues raised. Find them in the podcast notes at isa.int slash space debris or at usa.org. Episode 2, Falling to Earth Takes a Long Time, with Francesca Letizia and Xingyi Ang. Hello, hi Rosa, hi Xingyi. Uh, my name is uh, Francesca, Francesca Letizia. I am a space debris engineer at the Space Debris Office of the European Space Agency. Hi, uh, my name is Xingyi. I'm an Associate Scientific Affairs Officer at the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, also known as UNOSA. Hi, and welcome both. Thanks for joining us. So in this podcast, we're talking about how long it takes for satellites to naturally return to Earth. And it could come as a surprise to listeners that spacecraft do even come back. Um, Francesca, why do they return? Is it gravity that pulls them down? How do they come back down? Um, no, actually, it's not gravity, but the, it's the effect of the Earth atmosphere, um, which uh, affects the, the motion of the satellites along, the, along their orbit. And the, the atmosphere is uh, denser, close to the, to the Earth, so where the effect of the atmosphere is also will be uh, larger. And then as you move um, towards higher and higher altitude, the, the atmosphere becomes thinner and thinner. And so the effect is also um, much, much smaller. And this explains uh, why this, uh, this effect of mm, coming back uh, towards the Earth, uh, it's really dependent on which altitude the spacecraft is, uh, is operating. Do you have any idea roughly how many spacecraft are returning to Earth every year or day or week? Yes. So if we look at our statistics, we see that uh, we have around 300 uh, objects uh, per year uh, that return towards the Earth. Can you tell us a bit about the lowest orbiting satellites and how long it takes them to fall? Yeah, so if you are looking at a very um, low orbit, let's say below 500 kilometers and so, um, at this level, the so the effect of the atmosphere is, is such uh, that this spacecraft can re-enter uh, within 25 years, so we, which is uh, in line with this, the recommendation in the current uh, mitigation space debris mitigation guidelines. Okay, that sounds great. So they're kind of self-clearing up. Exactly. So we, we, we say that they are naturally compliant uh, because of the choice of the, of the orbit. Okay. And Zingyi, how about a little bit higher, about 800 kilometers? What about the satellites there? Okay. So, so a satellite that is located at around 800 kilometers above the Earth's surface would take about 100 to 150 years to fall back to Earth. That is a very long time, and there is a risk that they might explode and create fragments or collide with other objects and create even more fragments. This is very dangerous, so that is why we want to limit the number of satellites in orbit. 
so how about a little bit higher at 1200 1200 kilometers sing Yi, tell us about the roman empire well so so for satellites that are located at the higher altitude about at 1200 above kilometers above the earth's surface they would take about 2000 years to fall back to earth to put things in perspective, that means had a satellite been launched during the Roman Empire, it would only fall back to Earth today. I wonder what a Roman spacecraft would look like. So the point of thinking about it in these terms is just to show that everything that we send up to space stays up there for a pretty long time, which means we have to act to bring spacecraft down to Earth at these orbits. Um, Francesca, how about satellites at some of the highest orbits in the geostationary ring? There's a different rule that applies to these. Yes, so for these satellites, um, what happens is that the the impact of the Earth atmosphere is almost negligible. So if we uh, would simply leave them in their orbit, they would probably stay uh, there uh, in, for an indefinite amount of time. But this orbit is actually very, very valuable. Uh, so to, let's say, make space for new operational satellites and also to avoid the risk of uh, the, the satellites fragments in orbit, what is done is that, that once the satellite is no longer operational, or just before actually this is no longer operational, is moved to what is called a graveyard orbit. And so this is the, the recommended action basically for the, this kind of, uh, of orbits. Wow, the graveyard orbit sounds quite spooky. <laughs> so for these satellites, they can take potentially forever. They'll never come back down again. So we need to uh, move them is it a little bit up? Where, whereabouts is the graveyard orbit? Yes, so it's a little bit up. And uh, this, so the, the distance um, is, has been computed in such a way that uh, for at least 100 years, uh, a spacecraft that is in the graveyard orbit will not interfere with the objects that are in the geostationary orbit, so where the operational, the active satellites are still uh, located. And that's why you create this offset uh, between the, these two classes, let's say classes of, um, of spacecraft. And I guess in 100, uh, 100 years or so, maybe we'll have the technology then to bring them back down or do something else with them. Yeah, this we don't know yet, of course, but uh, what we know is that already this year, so in 2020, uh, we have seen the, the first mission um, that actually went to one of the satellites in a, in a graveyard orbit and attached to this, uh, to this old satellite. And uh, now the satellite has been brought back to the geostationary orbit uh, where it would be able to operate uh, again. So maybe in the future we will see uh, we could see more of this uh, what is called on-orbit servicing, uh, so where uh, old spacecraft can be uh, somehow reactivated or uh, which mi the missions can be extended for longer time. So it's it's bringing spacecraft almost back from the dead from the graveyard orbit and back into operations. That could be the future. Maybe we could talk a bit about what the UN does in this area. Yes, absolutely. The United Nations has published a set of guidelines on how to deal with satellites at the end of their missions. The action depends on the orbit of the satellite. If the satellite is in low Earth orbit, it should be sent down to Earth to burn up safely in the atmosphere. If not, the satellite should be sent way up to another higher orbit, 
the area known as the graveyard orbit, as mentioned by Francesca, so that it is out of the way of other satellites. Note that as the satellite burns up on its way back to Earth, we must ensure that any debris that survives to reach the surface of the Earth does not pose an undue risk to people or property or cause environmental pollution due to the hazardous substances released. Yeah, interesting. And at ESA, we have the Clean Space Office. And in another podcast, we'll talk a bit about what they're doing to minimize some of these uh, hazardous uh, substances and environmental hazards. Francesca, how about ESA? What is ESA doing when it comes to minimizing the amount of time that satellites are in space? So first of all, um, ESA has been a very active role in um, yeah, studying these mitigation guidelines and the related standards. So first, yeah, it's on really on writing uh, these guidelines and also understanding which is their impact, for example, when you look at how the environment of the debris population will evolve over time. So understanding what we should do and how effective these uh, actions are. And these uh, guidelines have become formally applicable for ESA missions uh, since some, some years, I think from 2011. But already for old missions, uh, ESA has tried uh, a best effort, effort uh, approach. Uh, for example, is in the case of ERS-2, um, we that uh, was um, in an orbit um, at around 800 kilometers, and the orbit was uh, reduced at the end of its operational time, exactly to try to, to be compliant uh, with this uh, 25 years rule. And this, even if the space, spacecraft was not designed to do this and these guidelines were st still not there uh, when the spacecraft was, was launched. And in addition to that, what we also do um, as an agency is also to um, provide, uh, for example, the, the software tool that anyone can, can use when they're designing their missions to have this preliminary assessment of how compliant a mission is and which actions they should be taking. And these are, are available for free from, from our websites. And the final uh, thing that we do at ESA is also to uh, look at what's happening in um, in the space environment and try to have a picture of which is the the current level of adoption of this um, uh, mitigation guideline. So how many satellites uh, every year, for example, um, actually perform a maneuver to to dispose uh, at the end of their operational lifetime? How many of these spacecraft are in naturally compliant orbit, etc.? So we we prepare this kind of uh, of analysis. And how's it looking? Are people complying to the guidelines, or is it improving? So it's um, let's say it's a very interesting uh, situation because, for example, what we see currently is um, a very different behavior uh, if you look at geo, so the geostationary orbit, or if we look at low Earth orbit. Um, and if I start from the, the low Earth orbit, we see that the, the level of compliance is still um, a bit low, or let's say uh, less than what we would um, uh, hope for, as we, we are around between 20 and 40 percent uh, level of um, spacecraft that should um, or satellites, I should say, that uh, should do a maneuver at the end of, of life, and they actually do so. So it's around 20, 40 percent. Um, but uh, what's uh, what's happening uh, recently is you have more and more missions that are operating um, at lower altitudes, so that they are naturally compliant. Uh, 
Um, we also see that, for example, if we look not only at the uh, at the satellites, but also at the upper stages or so the rocket uh, that are used, uh, we see there that there is an improvement on in the percentage of rocket bodies that are disposed after the, the launch. And as I said, if we look directly to GEO, then we see that there the level of compliance is really much higher. So we are consistently uh, above 80% uh, compliance wow. to the, the pre-mitigation guidelines. So, Maybe, I mean, we, we hope that um, so we will see this trend and these numbers in the future, also for the, the lower orbit. Ah, interesting. So it's a reasonably positive picture in the upper geostationary orbits. And in low Earth orbit, many of the satellites there are naturally compliant because of that atmospheric drag. Yes, but the level, let's say, of compliance in low Earth orbit, for sure, will need to improve because... Um, yeah. If we look at the, so if we imagine that we extrapolate uh, the current level of mitigation that we observe now um, to the future, um, this will result in an, an exponential increase of the number of objects in lower orbit in mm-hmm. uh, the framework of 100 or 200 years. So the current level of, of compliance is not enough. Um, and that's why it's important that yeah there is an, an improvement. And as I said, maybe if uh, if we look at the the performance in geo, so if we would reach uh, that level, it would be definitely uh, a much better situation. Um, and on that, ESA publishes an annual report actually on the space environment. So if anyone listening is interested in getting more detail on the state of space debris and how missions and satellites at different orbits are adhering to international rules, then check out our website for that. So. To wrap up, what is the main message that you'd both like people to take away from this chat and this topic? Um, how about you, Zingyi? Yes, um, I would like people to remember that we can't simply sit around and wait for an out-of-order satellite to fall back to Earth by itself, because the process can take very long. Instead, we have to be proactive. We should either send it back down to Earth to burn up in the atmosphere or send it way up high into another orbit out of the way of other satellites. Yeah, I would fully agree with uh, Xingyi. So I think it's really important to stress the, the need to, to, to act. And so the, there is a need for uh, the satellites to be uh, moved uh, out from the operational orbits if they are above this, um, if they are not naturally compliant, as we said before, uh, so that we avoid having uh, old spacecraft uh, in orbit that they could uh, fragment, for example, or become a risk uh, for the future. And uh, these timelines that, they, that uh, we have seen uh, in these graphics also show us that uh, we really need to, to act now to not create issues for the, the next generations that also will have an interest in uh, operating uh, in space. So, thanks for listening. You can find out more about space debris and the work being done to tackle it at isa.int forward slash space debris and at usa.org and follow the hashtags spacecare and space sustainability on Twitter to join the conversation.